All right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 21, where we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 33. The rapture of the church could happen, according to scriptures, at any moment. Believers will be instantly caught up to be with the Lord in the air, and thus they shall always be with the Lord. Those who don't know Christ, who only profess to know Christ, will be exposed for what they are. Religious hypocrites are those who are deceived into thinking they know Christ, uh, but don't. Maybe those who just flat out reject him. But imagine what would happen if the rapture happened right now. Right now, now, you know, imagine the terror of still being sitting here with, you know, a half the church or two thirds of the church all of a sudden disappears. And there you are looking at each other. You're now caught because you all know that all of you have either been pretending to be something you're not, or you know, you are not truly a believer but didn't want to face up with a public declaration of that. And either way, you're now exposed. Knowing you will now go through such a time that has never before or ever will be equaled in the history of the world should give you some great concern. The tribulation is that time period, that seven years that is leading up to Jesus's coming which god then turns his attention to israel to save the jews again so many of them are saved and then he also brings judgment upon the world so that he then in glory can return and establish his own kingdom and if you are here and you're still living in unbelief this should concern you In our text, Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. He's left the temple. He's through with his public ministry. Him and his disciples have gone up to the east, up the Mount of Olives, going over the Mount of Olives to stay the night in Bethany. And maybe half or three quarters of the way up or maybe towards the very top, they stop. And they're looking out over the Temple Mount, which is white marble and gold and just huge and gorgeous. And the disciples comment about how beautiful it looks. Jesus then makes a statement that not one stone would be left upon another, but that all of it, every single speck of it, would be torn down. Well... That's a pretty incredible statement. And so a few of the disciples, I think it was uh, Peter, James, and John, come to Jesus privately and they say, so when is this going to take place? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus then goes into explaining, answering that question. But of course, in order to answer that question, he has to explain what's going to happen in the near future, 70 AD, and what's going to happen beyond our future in the tribulation. They think when they ask those questions, they're all talking about the same event. So when Jesus answers, some of his answers relate to the events leading up to and including 70 AD and some of them relate to the tribulation and some of them overlap and relate to both since both events are similar. 
Well, by the time we get into the text right now in what is called the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is now speaking exclusively of what is going to happen during the tribulation. The Antichrist is going to rise to power. He is going to commit the abomination of desolation, claiming to be God in the temple. And that there signals the middle, the halfway through this time called the tribulation or the beginning of the three and a half years leading up to Jesus' return, which is called the great tribulation because at the end of the tribulation, the judgments of God are intensified upon the earth. And so this is what our text is about this morning. If you have your Bibles, look at Luke 21 and you can follow along as I read verses 25 and following. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars and on the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as you see they put forth leaves, you See it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We see from this text four events that will occur towards the end of the tribulation. And it's very important specifically for those who don't know Christ, who find themselves in the tribulation, that they know these things so that they can be prepared and turn to Christ and not perish with the rest of the world. Calvary Bible Church teaches that believers will not go through the tribulation. We don't need to worry about the tribulation. We don't need to look for the Antichrist. Why? Because we won't be here. We believe that the rapture, the catching away of the church in the air to meet the Lord will happen before the seven year period of Christ's return. But even if we're wrong, the scriptures are clear that we will be preserved from the wrath to come. This end times wrath, which will come upon the world. How do we know that? Keep your finger here in Luke 21 and turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we can see why this is. Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians who were kind of confused by some false teachers who came in and said, the day of the Lord has already happened, the resurrection has already happened, and you guys have missed it, and they're thinking, we did? I thought, you know, it was going to be a lot bigger, and we'd all know about it, and, you know, it was all, what happened? And this is what Paul says, starting in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as the rest, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, this destruction will come upon them suddenly like the labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or sleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Here, Paul makes it clear that there will come a time when a resurrection takes place. And it's not like the second coming where Jesus appears and comes back to earth, but a time where Jesus comes and we're caught up to be with the Lord in the air, to remain with the Lord in the air. This is what is called usually the rapture, the catching away of the church. And it is clear from verse 9 that God has not destined us to suffer the end times wrath. That is for two groups particularly. First, it is for unbelievers to be judged because they reject Christ, and secondly, to bring the Jews to repentance so that many are saved. And so God has not destined the church for end times wrath, but for deliverance. Now, you might ask yourself, as you look at a, these prophetic texts, what is the purpose of this? I mean, if we're, we're going to be taken away and we don't need to worry about it, then why study it? Well, that's a good question. All prophecy is designed to give believers hope. So no matter what your system is, everybody believes Jesus wins. And that's good. That at the end, Christ will reign. And that's good. Prophecy shows us that evil will be done away with and righteousness will prevail. That's good. Prophecy gives us confidence in the promises of God as we see his faithfulness in fulfilling prophecies up to this point, so we know he will fulfill the ones to come. Prophecy gives us peace, knowing God is in control of all things, and he is taking all of history, and he is driving it and moving it and directing it to his intended purposes. Prophecy makes us realize that Christ could come back at any moment, so it motivates us, to live for him in holiness. Prophecy 
encourages us to tell other people about Christ and to share our faith. Some of you, I am sure, do not know the Lord. And I wish I knew which one. I wish we had those scanners like they have in shopping malls. And that when you came in, you beeped and they just shuttled you over to a room where we would preach the gospel at you every week and pray for you that you would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't know that. So we're all here together. There are three general ways to know someone is truly saved and born again. First, they profess to believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation Secondly, they have a knowledge of the true saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And three, they follow Christ. This is where things get a little tricky in that no Christian perfectly follows Christ. We are all sinners and we all follow Christ imperfectly. The Holy Spirit dwells in believers though. The Holy Spirit makes believers want to please Christ It makes them love God, love Christ, love the things of God's word, God's people, God's service. They strive against sin and pursue holiness in the fear of God. They love Jesus and they show that they love Jesus by keeping his commandments. And the question is, is that you? If not... God's word says you are lost and you are on your way to hell this very moment. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. The wrath of God abides on you right now. Now you might wonder, well, man, that is pretty harsh. That doesn't make me feel good. And that seems pretty judgmental. You know, who am I to judge you? And who am I to say that you don't know Christ if you're living in rebellion against the Lord? That there's no fruit of repentance in your life. I'll tell you who I am. I am your greatest friend. For only an enemy, only an enemy of your soul would tell you, oh, you're a Christian. You're on your way to heaven, though you don't love the Lord. Satan wants people to be comfortable on their way to everlasting ruin, but I'm not going to be that person. We all know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not as a result of works. Yes, we are all sinners, but when we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we then become followers of Christ. Not perfect followers, but it is the direction of our life. It's normal for the way we live. It is our pursuit from then on. And this is why the Bible calls salvation being born again because we are made into new creatures in Christ or regenerated. We become different than we ever were before. Again, being saved does not mean never sinning again, but it does mean being transformed by saving grace. As Ephesians 2.10 reminds us right after Paul gives six different reasons why salvation is not of works, but of grace. He then says, we true believers are his God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Not perfectly, 
but habitually, regularly, as a way of life, normally, as a pattern. Yes, there are a few texts in the Word of God which indicate a person can know Christ and live in unrepentant sin. There's a few examples. I think probably the one that everybody knows most about is David and how he committed adultery and committed murder. And for nine months, he lived in unrepentance. But it was only for a time. And we know from the Psalms that he wrote, he said his, his, his body wasted away as with the fever heat of summer. And he was so convicted that whole time, he said God's hand was heavy upon him. So yes, he was in unrepentance, but he knew it. And he was miserable. And then he repented of his sin. God, being the perfect father, disciplines every legitimate believer so that they don't continue too long in sin. He tries the tap with the stick and then the whack, and then he brings the preacher to break the leg, I guess, using Jim's analogy. And Paul does give... uh, an instance where he talks about men who have fallen into sin, who have been disciplined out of the church and have been what he describes as given over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that their spirit might be saved in the day of visitation. In other words, there is a chance that a person might be saved, that they might not live for the Lord, they they might be disciplined out of the church, and that in living for the world, God would eventually take them home and they would escape, though having never repented of whatever sins they got caught up in. But hear me now, that is the very rare exception. The very rare exception. And by the way, you hear people talk today, you would think that it's the norm. It's not. The large majority of texts in the Bible that describe people who profess to know Christ, but with their deeds deny him, tell us they're not saved. 20, 30 to 1, I imagine. I haven't counted them all. And when I talk about living in unconfessed sin, people living in unconfessed sin, yet saying they're Christians, not totally being saved, I'm not talking about being an axe murderer. I'm talking about not reading your Bible, not coming to church, not serving, not giving, not telling people about Christ, normal, basic Christian activity. The scriptures say, if you are not living that way as the norm, the pattern of your life, you are lost. You are not a Christian Merely because you gather with believers on Sunday and profess to be one. Christianity is not a club that you give lip service to. It is life transformation by grace through faith in Christ. Many give lip service to Jesus and say, I'm on the road to heaven, but on the broad road to hell. Association will not save you. There must be transformation. You must be born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. Jesus taught there will always be goats among the sheep, tares among the wheat, seeds sown on rocky and weedy soils, which for a time looks like the genuine thing and to us looks legitimate, but then is cast into the fire. 
And so if you wonder, well, that seems kind of mean and, you know, I came here to be encouraged, then be encouraged with this. You're perishing if you're not living for the Lord. Examine yourself. John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree, every one that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The apostle John says in John three thirty six, he who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. He goes on to say in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. He goes on to say in verse 23 and 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and he will come to him and we will make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. There's a whole generation of professing people now who think they're Christians because they come to church. No, no, no. You must follow Christ or please, please doubt your salvation. The apostle Paul, the apostle of grace, as he is sometimes called, wrote the book of Romans proclaiming salvation by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone over and over again. But those who haven't really studied the book don't know that at the beginning of the book, he tells us that the purpose he has in preaching the gospel, Romans chapter one, verse five, is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. In the middle of the book, in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Then he says at the end of Romans, in Romans chapter 16, verse 26, about the command of the eternal God has been made known to all nations leading to the obedience of faith. There, there is this twisted idea that grace is about rebellion. It's not about rebellion. It's about freedom to obey, power to obey, strength to overcome sin, not live in it and still get into heaven. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. These are clear, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice these things and things like these will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is about as crystal clear as you can get. If you missed it there, you're going to read the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 and 11. 
And if that doesn't work, then you can go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. And if that doesn't work, you can go to Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. They say the same exact thing. There is no such thing as a Christian who is living in ongoing rebellion against God as a way of life. That is not a Christian. Because when God's grace gets a hold of somebody, they repent of their sin and they pursue Christ. Perfectly? No. As a habit? Yes. As a normality? Yes. As the goal of their life? Yes. Paul says in Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but with their deeds they deny Him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Do you profess to know Christ? Is that something you do regularly? Do you deny him with your deeds? Then you don't know him. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5, 9, and having been made perfect, speaking of Jesus, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. James says in James 2, Verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. Verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. It cannot save you. John says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who was born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, you may be thinking to yourself right now, well, Pastor Jack, where's the grace here? Where is the love here? I just gave it to you. All of God's word is his gracious gift to us. And to tell you the truth is his gracious gift to you. If you aren't living for the Lord, please doubt your salvation. Please examine your heart. Because God's word says, and this is just a sampling of the verses. I got other things I'm going to say. God's word makes it definitively clear. Those who do not pursue Christ don't know him. Period. The verses are clear. I mean, how many do I need to read? And it's not that you're saved by works. You're not. For those of you who don't know Christ, don't think, well, I need to do a whole bunch of work so I can be saved. No, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then you'll do the good works because you have the Holy Spirit driving you to do those works. Martin Luther, the champion of grace, said, quote, one is justified not by doing what is right, 
But he who is justified does what is right. And so if you look at your life and realize, yeah, I know I'm not following Christ on this area and this area and this area and this area. And I have all these sins and I don't confess them and I don't feel bad. And I just keep ignoring them, ignoring them, ignoring them. That is the telltale sign that you are lost right now and you need salvation. Paul writing to Titus about saving grace said this. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I want you to listen about what saving grace does. True saving grace, not the world's twisted view of grace that allows you to sin with impunity and no consequences. I'm talking about the real stuff. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. We're talking about saving grace here. What does saving grace do? Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. There are two main things in this passage. One, saving grace transforms a person into a zealous follower of Christ and those people wait eagerly for Jesus's return. Is that you? Does that describe you last week, last month, last year? We're going to be looking at a text right now that is just absolutely scary to those who don't know Christ. Don't tell me that you're a follower of a Christ if you're not following Christ. If you say, well, I'm his sheep, but I don't follow him. I don't live for him. I don't worship him. I don't give to him. I give him a little bit of my time. You're deluded. Satan would have me sow soft pillows of assurance under your head so that you don't wake up until you're in hell, but I just cannot do that. I won't do it. When there is an absence of love for Christ demonstrated by the failure to pursue holiness and obey Christ, it is the certain sign of spiritual death. And this is the final reason why we need to know about what's going to happen during the tribulation because there's a very good chance that some of you are going to go through that time and it's going to be bad. If the rapture were to happen this morning, maybe having been left behind, you might repent, might turn to the Lord, might be broken, realizing that you blew it, that you had these chances and it was lost. But chances are you still wouldn't believe. You know why? Because whatever excuses you're using now to not give your life to Christ, you'd use them after the rapture as well. They are part of your life. If you've come to Calvary Bible Church, you've only heard the gospel every Sunday. Every Sunday. I get it in every Sunday. Let's look at these points. Look at verse 25 of our text, Luke 21. There'll be signs and sun and moon and stars. Stop there. The heavens begin to freak out during the tribulation. You see, there's one thing that men really can count on. The sun comes up in the morning and it goes down at night. I mean, that is reliable. 
the moon goes around the earth. And that's reliable, like clockwork. Of course, nobody knows how that works so perfectly. Nobody knows who keeps all the planets in orbit or why the moon just happens to circle the earth so perfectly with exact precision and no one has to adjust the moon. But it happens because chance, they say, is running the universe. Random nothingness is keeping everything together. Yet Christians know different. And so Christians know that God is in control of the heavens and he begins to create signs in the sun and moon, which he goes on to describe as the heavens being shaken. There's many texts that talk about this. Just one, Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11, describes these days. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their, their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind more than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts and the day of his burning anger. Here, God says, I'm going to mess up the earth and the sun and the moon and people are going to see it. And how are they going to respond? Look at the middle of verse 25. And on earth, there will be dismay among the nations. This word dismay means to be in anguish, terror, uh, to just be pressed on from all sides. People are going to, you know... Okay, your, your, your city has pollution. Everybody can band together and clean it up. But who's going to clean up the moon? Who's going to put it back in orbit? Who's going to make the sun shine again? Who's going to fix this if the earth starts hurling out into space? Who's going to do that? It causes great despair because everybody knows no one can fix it. We're doomed. Look towards the end of verse 25. Men will also be in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Why? Because the moon regulates the tides. And if the moon's knocked out of kilter, all of a sudden the tides start doing their things. Big earthquakes happen. Tsunamis begin to rage and just plow through the coastland. We know. We know what happens. We know what happens. Volcanoes, meteorites, wars, famine. Dust and soot and ash in the atmosphere, huge changes in weather. The ocean will become fierce and unpredictable. Revelation 8 says a giant meteorite will strike the sea and wipe out a third of the ships. Just that one event. Look at verse 26. Men will be fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world. These are not events in 70 A.D., as some say, oh yeah, that, that already happened. Notice, the things which are coming upon the world, the whole inhabited earth. If you look down in verse 35, it will come upon those who dwell on the face of all the earth. Global judgment. Jesus is talking about the tribulation here. This time where he begins to judge the earth, save the Jews, and prepare the earth for his coming. They come with more intensity and they're so scary, men faint. You know what happens, why people faint, right? God has placed in us a little mechanism to protect us from mental trauma. 
And so when something really scary happens, our brain says, whoa, whoa, this is too much. Arteries, relax, heart, slow down, and you're gone. And your brain's hoping that by the time you wake up, the trauma will be passed. You'll be eaten by the lion or whatever. But in this case, it doesn't pass. It, it continues on especially with special intensity during the last three and a half years. There's so many things that people see. It just People are just constantly fading from the terror of it all. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 through 17 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders, the rich and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Men so hardened, even though they know Christ is doing it, they know he is on the throne, they know he is God, they then would prefer to have rocks and mountains fall on them than to bow the knee to Jesus. So hard are they in their sin. Revelation 9 says, extra wicked demons are released upon the earth. Those demons that have been incarcerated in the bottomless pit because of their wickedness and they're released to torment men on the earth. And Revelation 9 verse 6 says, in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. Look at our text in the end of verse 26, for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. It's like God just traumatizes everything up there beyond the earth and men are so scared they're just fainting and judgments are coming down upon the earth to bring men to the one conclusion that is the lord who rules heaven and earth and yet many will still not believe then what happens when everything gets really bad when the judgments intensify when the earthquakes and the famines and the wars and the pestilence and the Antichrist is trying to kill the Jews and God is killing tons of unbelievers. I mean, what's happening? Then Jesus will come in glory. Look at verse 27. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Revelation 1, 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Unlike the babe born in Bethlehem, meek and humble and obscure, he comes back in radiant light. He rends the heavens. He commands his angels, the saints that he has raptured are with him in in white raiment and they come back and all of the angels and all of the saints are watching Jesus single-handedly as the king of kings and lord of lords take back the earth and he does this in great glory and great splendor Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 describe it in these words I kept looking in the night visions and behold the clouds of the heaven one like the son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all the peoples nations and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed 
As the hallelujah chorus of Handel's Messiah so accurately states, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. John describes the second coming of Christ with these words in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen. That's those who believe who have been raptured. White and clean are following him on white horses. For from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written king of kings and Lord of lords. Christ's patience runs out. It's over. He has saved the last person he's going to save, and now he's coming back. Not meek and humble, but as he is now. Exalted in glorious splendor with a word. He says, die. And all unbelievers over all the earth drop dead and their spirits Perish in hell. Revelation 19 verses 20 and 21 say, And the beast, that's the Antichrist, was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Christ slays everyone, everybody who doesn't know him. They all die. So that what's left when Christ returns is a few believers and a decimated earth and no unbelievers. And all those who mocked Christ, all those who said, well, if God is so loving, if God is so just, then why doesn't he do something about the evil in the world? Christ will kill them and do something about it. Christ will set up his throne in Jerusalem. Faithful believers will have positions of great power and authority. There will be order, authority. Submission, each will have a job to do, each working for the common good, each worshiping the Lord. Jesus, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, will prove to all men and angels and demons that he is, in fact, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 9 through 11 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Gibba to Rimmon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain in its site from Benjamin gate, Benjamin's gate as far as the 
place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel to the king's winepress, people will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Jerusalem will actually be geographically exalted. The Mount of Olives will be torn in two. A river will pour down from the temple and flow into the Dead Sea, which will make it fresh waters. Trees will spring up. The whole world will be rejuvenated during Christ's kingdom. Jesus tells believers during the tribulation to do two things. In verse 28, look there. But when these things begin to take place, what things? Well, everything he's been talking about, Jerusalem shrouded by armies, the abomination of desolation by the Antichrist, the heavens being shaken, signs in the heaven, earthquake, famine, plagues, pestilence, war, judgments of God coming down. When all these things take place, Jesus tells us to straighten up and lift up your heads. And what's interesting here is these are commands. Jesus doesn't, he's not saying, you know, you might want to consider being of good cheer and keeping a stiff upper lip. He's not saying that. He actually uses the strongest form of the Greek command here. I command you believers, you tribulation saints, to look up and anticipate my imminent return. Look at the end of verse 28. Because your redemption is drawing near. Christ will rescue. He will redeem. He will purchase from the troubles of the tribulation. All those who have placed their faith in him and live for him at his glorious return. All those who persecuted believers during the tribulation will be dealt with severely. Paul speaks of it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, where he talks about God's judgment upon those who persecute believers during the tribulation. He says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Jesus will come back and it just describes him as just flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to every single unbeliever. Slaying them all. At his glorious appearing. Third, consider the trees as a picture. Look at verse 29. Jesus now gives a very simple parable. He says, then he told them a parable. Behold, a fig tree and all of it, all the trees... As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and you know for yourself that summer is now near. Everybody knows that in the fall, deciduous trees lose their leaves. They're bare all winter. Then as spring begins to approach, they get little buds that begin to swell. And eventually the leaves begin to pop out. And as soon as you see those little tiny leaves, you know, hey, summer's a couple months off. No brainer. So when you see... Look at verse 31. So also when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. What things? All the things he's been talking about. The judgments, the Antichrist, people dying, 
all those things. That's why you can straighten up. That's why when things are the worst, you can be most excited. Because Jesus is coming back. And he's going to rescue all the tribulation saints. For those who see these things will see Jesus return in glory. Look at verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. There's a lot of different talk about what does this generation mean? I mean, it's pretty easy when you just look at the context. Some people say, well, it's talking about the Jews not perishing. They're actually going to live as a nation until Jesus comes back. Well, of course that's true, but that's not what it's talking about here. Others have tried to spiritualize it and say, you know what? All these things already took place. All these events I've just read about already happened, except Jesus' actual physical coming to earth. I mean, he did come. He is now ruling and reigning. Satan is bound because of the preaching of the gospel. And all these things kind of happened in 70 AD. Oh, man, that you have to do a violence to a lot of texts to believe that. The best way is just to understand it in the normal reading of the... He's talking about the end-time events. He says, if you see these end-time events, those who see these end-time events will see Jesus come in his glory. And then just to give us a little bit of encouragement, because there's always people who want to come and say, you know, I know these prophetic passages say this, but they don't really believe mean that. I know that Jesus says there'll be an antichrist, but there won't. I know it says he'll commit the abomination of desolation halfway through the tribulation, but that, you know, really, there's not really a really a literal tribulation. And there's not literally two witnesses, and there's not literally these judgments, and there's not literally... It's amazing how many people say that. But Jesus wants us to know, look at verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You can throw stones at them. You can try and spiritualize them all you want. But listen, all the prophecies that have been fulfilled so far have been fulfilled just as they were predicted, literally, just like they were predicted, and so will the rest. And though somebody comes to you and says, you know what, it's not really going to happen that way, his words will come to pass. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It's forever established. You may be sitting there this morning thinking to yourself, Well, you know, I just don't want to repent of my sins right now. I've got sins I enjoy. I don't want to give my life. I'll come to church. I'll keep playing the game. I'll try to make other people think I'm a Christian. I'll do some good works. I'll give to the building fund. I'll do all these things. But don't expect me. Don't expect me to give my life to Christ now. I'm not quite sure about this Christianity thing. I'll tell you what. If the rapture happens, then I'll get serious. No, you will probably perish because your time will have been passed. Because if you come to this church, you've heard the gospel so many times. Every time you leave here without giving your life to Christ, your heart grows harder and harder. And it's most likely it's petrified beyond redemption. You don't know when your last chance to repent will be. Today is always the day of salvation. Never put off. What must and can be done today for an uncertain future? That is gambling with your soul. Salvation is being offered to you right now. So take it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone to save you. And don't put it off. There are no pleasures in this world that are worth your soul. 
The prophet Daniel speaks to those Jews who come to Christ during the tribulation. He says some very encouraging words to them. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 says this. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Many are going back and forth right now like never before around the world. Knowledge is increasing at an exponential rate. The end times are upon us. Christ can come back for his church at any time. Make sure you're one of them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the text that we read this morning. Father, how clear it is that those who don't walk in obedience to you as the normal pattern of their life are lost. I pray for those here this morning who are clinging to secret sins and rebellions, husbands not loving wives, wives not loving husbands, people enslaved to various sins who, because they will not repent of them, cannot find freedom. Those who are deceived into thinking they know you because they come to church periodically and claim to be Christians. Father, I pray that you would show them the lostness of their soul, that they would repent, that they would believe, that they would be saved, that they would experience for real that Christianity is not a hoax, but it causes people to be born again. Help them to cry out to Christ and save them. And for the rest of us, may we live our lives in hope, looking for your blessed coming, evangelizing the lost, and doing your will so that when you do return, we will not be ashamed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.